Us today we have a very special guest. Ryan Shaw is uh, visiting with us. Broadway fans know Ryan from Motown on Broadway, where Ryan, you uh, played Stevie Wonder and you understudied Marvin Gaye. Isn't that correct? That is correct. And we're going to get back to that in a minute, but uh, but I'm doing a little sleuthing here and checking up on you here and there, and. Uh, you uh, had really incredible reviews for your uh, production of Jesus Christ Superstar, where you played Judas. But a little birdie told me that you want to play a Sweeney Todd. That's what uh, you want to do. Uh, but you want to take it up an octave. Well, maybe not necessarily an octave, but a third at least. Yes, at least a third. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, um, you know, uh, Sweeney, uh, Sweeney Todd to Judas. Uh, it's a, it's a good range. It's a, it, it's a good range, and you played uh, Stevie Wonder on Broadway. You understudied Marvin Gaye. Did you understudy Marvin Gaye before or after you had the idea for your new album called Imagining Marvin? Long before the the Imagining Marvin project um, concept just came about, like in end of two thousand eighteen, going into nineteen. Oh, uh, no, end of, ni- yeah, eighteen going into nineteen, yeah. Back when we didn't wear masks. Back when we didn't wear masks. Well, we never knew, yes, that we needed to invest in 3M Corporation. We never knew. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was back back from then. Uh, I was, I understood Marvin on, in Motown, like that was, so that was 2013, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And then this concept came about uh, much later. But it came about because I realized that Marvin was really, had been intertwined into my whole career, almost uh, me being unaware of it. Um, because when I first moved to New York, they would always say, go to the, like, where do you go to be seen? Where do you go to, like, get started, like, meet people or music industry people? And they's like, oh, go to the open mics down in the village, West 4th Street. And so I first went down and, like, the first song, you know, I'm sort of like a, a I'm sort of sappy, I guess you could say. Uh, so I would always, like, do a, a, start off with, like, a ballad. And so I, the first song I ever sang down there was Everything Must Change. And it kind of fell flat because people are drunk and I was new to New York and people are just sitting around the bar and they don't want to really have to connect. They want to just dance if it's good and just do that. So the second song that I sang that actually got people's attention was What's Going On. Oh. And back in those days, once you found a song that worked for you and the hosts of the show knew you and people would like give you standing ovations and throw money at the stage, you would become what they call, you know, air quotes, a favorite. And so... At that point, once you become a favorite, you no longer have to sign the list to sing. If they saw you there, they automatically would call you when they when they knew what the show needed. So if they knew the show needed like a an uplift right now, or they had like ten singers that kind of sucked, then they would call someone else up that they knew would steal the show. So you become like one of the regulars or favorites down there. So I was literally saying what's going on for like two years. Then fast forward to Motown. Well, actually, fast forward to to my right before Motown, or actually around the same time. My second, my 
third Grammy nomination was for I sang the Beatles yesterday. But the version that I based my version off was Marvin Gaye's version of yesterday, which many people have not heard. It's sort of an obscure, obscure version of that song. But my version is, is heavily based off Marvin's version of that song. Um, and then to understudy him in Broadway, at, on Broadway. And then, <clears throat> so in, fast forward till 2018, uh, we were doing some research about the time and trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do with my next project. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to just do a bunch of covers of a bunch of different artists because I don't want to become like a covers artist. But then we found out it was like Marvin's 80th birthday. And I was like, oh, that would make more sense because, you know, he's then all those flashes came. Oh, I sang Marvin when I first got here and understudied him on Broadway. My third Grammy nomination was because I was like, this would be a great. Maybe I could just honor him and it won't be so weird. But I didn't want to do a Marvin's cover album. I want to do a Marvin inspired album. And that's why it's called Imagine and Marvin. Oh, that's great. So let's unpack all these. Uh, you glossed over a handful of things when you mentioned your <laughs> third Grammy nomination. So in 2008, you were nominated for uh, Best Traditional R&B Vocal Performance for I Am Your Man. In 2011, you were a Grammy nominee for the Best Traditional R&B Vocal Performances for the song In Between. And you just mentioned in 2014, you were uh, had a Grammy nomination for the Best Traditional R&B Performances for the song yesterday, which uh, you just talked about, how it was inspired by the uh, the Marvin Gaye cover as well. So, I mean, in 1998, you moved to New York to become a Broadway performer and ended up t- touring with Tyler Perry. Tell us how did how did that all come up? Um, well, I started. That's how I got to New York, actually, with Tyler. So I was when I I sort of grew up in the burbs of Atlanta, Decatur, to be exact, where it's greater. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Decatur and I, initially when I first graduated high school I went to um, well, I've done a lot of things <laughs> but I went to the military I was in the Marine Corps um, mm-hmm. and when I got back I was working at a at a bank and um, I shouldn't have said the name because it was not a good story that's going to follow this, but it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> but I was working there and, and uh, the president of the bank at the time, he really took to me and I was like one of the tellers at the main branch. They had a really small branch, sort of like a one person operation branch. But but um, I was like the only teller whose drawer came up like like almost to the penny every day, like completely like on. And he was like, I love your work. You've been consistent, even more consistent sometimes than the head teller you know who sometimes a few pennies off he's like you've been great and you're really great with the people and so i want you to manage this credit union up north up in the north in the north of atlanta especially back in the day was you know to send a black man to, to the north in perimeter meant i had to be doing something right because that was mm-hmm. all the, you know the white clientele up there and um and it was also the very rich you know it was, it was in like um in marietta and so back in you know the in that in those days Marietta was where it was happening and Buckhead and all the way up there so I went and then they played some kind of weird corporate game with me where I made an executive decision to serve the clients to serve the you know the the uh the clients first and so they sent this money so each week they would probably send like a quarter of a million to to a little over a quarter of a million dollars to the branch for the week and so my job was to get there in the morning count the money put it input the what I counted into the system, verify it, and then open for the day. They set it up so that Brinks came a day, came up late. 
And so it was right up until the time where I had to open. And every day I know I have certain clients to come get their money for breakfast. And some mm. people just sit there and sure. chat with me because they're just like talking to me. And so the money came late. And so I had like, it takes me about a half hour to do, do all that counting and, and confirming. And so I just decided that it's Brinks. They've never been wrong before that. I just put the money, put what they told me was in there in the system and open so that people could go about their day. And then after I did the morning rush, I closed, counted the money and then continue with the day. But when I closed and counted the money, I realized it was like $400 short from what they said. Wow. End of the day, come to find out that the manager calls me and he's questioning me about something because he already knows. And I realized that he already knows what they did. And the reason, and the fact that I didn't report it first thing in the morning was just a thing. So he was like, um, so how was it? I was like, it was good. I said, I was just, I was just about to call the branch because, and I told him what happened. I said, they came late. And then he was like, well, um, I know you've been great, but you know, your job is to put this in and that and the other and blah, 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 blah. And so I'm going to, I'm basically, he didn't, he said, I'm not going to fire you, but I'm going to bring you back to the main branch um, as a teller. And, um, and then we'll start over from there. And I was like, man, get out of here. And I just, and I resigned. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I was like, this is corporate bullshit and I'm not going to play the bullshit with you. And I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do what I really want to do, which was music. And then I left. And then uh, a few weeks later, I auditioned for one play and uh, got that, went out on the road for about six months. It was a play called Good Man is Hard to Find. And then I came back and then I auditioned for Tyler Perry after that and went back out on the road with him. And I was out with him for about a year. And we closed at the Beacon in New York City, at which time I decided I was going to stay in New York City. Great. And so that's all I got here. <laughs> uh, so uh, the folks over at Telsey tell me that uh, you came in to sing for Benny a few times, right? <laughs> yes, I did. I had 13 callbacks for rent. <laughs> After 13, you know, what do you say? What, do you, what, what else can you sing for them? On the 13th audition, well, on the 14th, she called me. She said, we want you to come in for Benny. I think it was Heidi. <laughs> I'm not sure if Heidi's still there, but I loved Heidi. She was mm-hmm. like, but it was Heidi. And I was like, hey, Heidi. She was like, yeah, we want to see you. For, we're going to bring you in for Benny. I was like, uh, I'm sorry. You guys have seen me like, this will be 14 times. And I haven't, done, there's no new, there's no improvement. There's, there's nothing. So I'm not going to come in. But please, if you, if you know of other things that you actually think I would be great for, please keep me in mind. And she's like, okay, I respect that. I understand it. So then we hung up. And then two weeks later, she called me for, I did the, First, and got my first equity, got my equity card for the first time doing the equity reading of Tom Sawyer back in the day. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Cool. I, I, so that did, was crazy. I, I missed that whole Tom Sawyer thing. I'm glad you brought that up. That was... <laughs> <laughs> well, after the, re- I don't know what, what it did after the read. I don't think it actually ever went, but it was just, it was just, it was just, an, it was just a reading, the stage reading of it that I did. Uh, and so, um, flash forward to uh, October 2019, you are hanging out in Washington, D.C. at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, uh, where you are doing, uh, you're celebrating the iconic Nat King Cole. Uh, How did that come about? That was great. <laughs> well, it was kind of weird because I did the, they did a Nat King Cole, uh, Steve Reinecke did the Nat King Cole Centennial concert at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it was actually with me and Nikki Renee Daniels. Um, 
we did that show there. And the producer who did also uh, the Kennedy Center saw that performance. They were doing a slightly different show. Um, so it wasn't just me and Nick. It was, a, it was like a super like high studded BB Winans and mm. you know, all, all of those. And uh, it just so happens that they had saw that performance and thought I was great. I wasn't quite available for the whole run. And they had uh, Dulé Hill was doing um, a segment at which he had a conflict with the taping of one of the shows he was doing. So they brought me in to cover Dulé for an evening, but which was great because it was my, was my um, Kennedy Center debut, which was ridiculous. And, you know, singing on stage, clearly with, with BB and... Um, I'm trying to think who else was there. It was a crazy night. Crazy. Oh, and um, uh, what's my what's my boy? Uh, Eric. Uh, Eric Benet. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. Was there. Yeah. And that was my first time meeting Eric, and we we became kind of cool. We sort of messaged for a little while after. I need to see how he's doing actually. Um, and so that was great. It was it was super super great. That the hall is beautiful, and yeah, it's one of those one of kind of experiences. Your first time in in venues like the Kennedy Center and in Carnegie Hall and in Radio City. Did you get a chance to bring your mom up to uh, radio to uh, Kennedy Center? No, no, it was so last minute. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. And, and my my parents are kind of weird. Anyway, my mom's like like I said, I grew up like Southern Pentecostal. Uh huh. And so as far as me like being a singer and doing all that, I mean, I'm she's very supportive and she's like, okay, you know. Well, she became supportive. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I yeah. understand you were uh, you went to uh, performing arts high school. I did. I went to Avondale for one year. At which point, my mom decided it was too worldly for me to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she pulled me out <laughs> and sent me to regular high school. <laughs> and uh, and I graduated from McNair, and uh, and I'm a McNair alumni in uh, in DeKalb County, DeKalb County Public School System, which is actually. For I'm pretty sure it still is now. It's like it was ranked like the top, um, one of the top educational uh, districts in the South. Period. Yeah, the Cap County school system was very, very good. And um, but yeah, so I, I went to regular school. I went to McNair with regular people. And mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but then you saw a uh, film of Sweeney Todd, or was it a production of Sweeney Todd? I actually saw. Well, this is when I went to Avondale. The one year that I went to Avondale, mm-hmm. we had what they call the trilogy. So it was eighth grade introduction to musical theater. And the first uh, quarter, we just sat and we watched musicals. And the first musical that they played was Sweeney Todd as part of this trilogy. And it was Sweeney Todd. And then it, after that, it was um, the other one that I'm sure my mother would never have allowed me to see. Um, um, chorus Line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know I, that was not going to be a thing for her. And, uh, <laughs> and and what was the last musical we saw? I just remember a chorus line and Sweeney Todd, and I was like, Sweeney Todd was my all time favorite. And then it was a it was a chorus line, and what was the third one? I don't really remember the third one. Um, it may come back to me, but the, the most memorable was those because it was just the chorus line was just so edgy for me growing up in the Pentecostal church, and so mm-hmm. was Sweeney Todd just being so dark in the the brilliance of like a barber at this time, just sort of killing people so that to get revenge and also so that this lady can have meat for her pies. It's just so dark and so brilliant. And, and just that, and just the music, I mean, sometimes that, that score, that's, that's a flawless score. There's nothing in that mm. score that 
you would fast forward, like if it was an album or as an album, you wouldn't fast forward anything. You wouldn't get bored at any point. It's like a flawless score to me. There is not one that I, well, not many, there's not many flawless scores on Broadway. There's always something you'd be like, ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, that musical for me is all time tops. Really so is. your eighth grade Ryan Shaw, can you imagine at that point that, you know, flash forward in your life, you're going to be working with Valerie Simpson? <laughs> no, because Valerie at that time, especially eighth grade Ryan Shaw, Valerie Simpson was in the world and she was going to hell. So, <laughs> so no, I would not have imagined that that was going to happen according to my upbringing. No. So uh, talk about yeah. your song with Valerie Simpson for your album. So you heard deep inside, but who knew, who knew? When was the last time you let something move you? Gave yourself the permission to choose to. Um, the song is called Strong Man Can. Uh, I've known Valerie and Nick for many, many years. Uh, when I first moved to New York, the Sugar Bar was one of those places they told me to go to do the open mic. And I remember the first time I sang, Valerie came up to me and she was like, what are you doing with that voice? And I was like, first of all, you're Valerie Simpson and you're talking to me. <laughs> and you're this close. And you're close enough for me to hear you. So I don't know what to do. I'm like, I'm just trying to make it, I guess. And she was like, well, you should come back and do another show. I think you're fantastic. So I kept going back and I did a couple of like intimate nights, my performing my own music there before. And then she and Nick just sort of took me under their wing. And I remember they were working on this musical um, back in the day. It was uh, of, um, I can't remember the guy's name. He was very famous, The Invisible Life. Uh, it was sort of about the first exposure of like, you know, people being on the DL kind of thing. And they were writing the music for this, what would have been a great musical. They were writing, working on music for that. And uh, they had asked me to come over and like sing some of the demos. And so I was doing the demos with them. And then Nick was like, you should come out. We should just do a writing session. Because I, after your last show, I just, I kind of like the way your mind works and how you come up with melodies and phrases. And, and I was like, well, hell yeah. Because I want to, if I can sit with y'all and absorb some of that, yes, I'm down. Mm-hmm. And so I went over to the house and we did a, a writing session um, I found the audio actually from that session a couple, about a year or so ago. I got to, I, I keep telling Valerie I was sent it, but I haven't sent it yet. I don't think, but, uh, but yeah, so they kind of took me under their wing and like would give me advice when things would come up and everything. And when I started doing this project, I, I know Valerie wrote with most of Marvin and Tammy Terrell's big hits. And uh, so I called her and I was like, I'm, I have a concept for a project I'm working on. And I had done a demo of, I want you. And I said, I want to come, I want to tell you what it is. And I want to play something for you. And you just tell me if it seems crazy, if it's whack, we'll just walk away from it. Or just, I just want to get your thoughts on it. And so I went and I played her the demo. Me and my manager went over. And in true Valerie form, she said, that's good. There's something there. There's something there. And I said, okay, that's good enough. It wasn't a no. It wasn't that stupid and don't do that. And, um, and so later, 
after she had gone and done some other things, I called her back and I was like, I, would you be interested in writing a new original song for this project since you wrote all of Marvin's earlier hits, you know? And she was like, let me think about it. And I said, okay. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, she sent me this voice memo and it was just her at the piano, like d- directly from her phone. And she was just, and had that, you know, the whole strong man can, can break down. Don't be afraid of the sound. And I was like, instant smile on my face. And I called her back. I was like, this is amazing. She was like, okay, well, just get in there and, you know, jump on and write some verses and, you know, write another verse and, and let's see if we can come with a bridge or something. And then she was like, just come up to the house. So we went to the house and the next thing we know, we had Strong Man Can. And it was very timely because the song talks about, it's like a mental health, sort mm-hmm. of like a um, public announcements all as well, you know, because the society we grew up in, especially that I grew up in, is like, as a man, this is how you have to be, you know. You do this, you be strong, don't cry, don't show signs of weakness and all these kind of things that you have to build up to be, even though logically things don't make sense that it should be that way. Like if I'm at a funeral for my best friend or for my grandmother to make me feel like I shouldn't cry or, you know, be strong. They would want you to be strong. I'm like, no, they want me to cry because we were friends. What are you saying? Shut up. Like what is happening? But that's kind of how what it birthed out of. And the song is just basically just talks about strong men can break down and don't be afraid of that sound, whatever that breakdown is for you, because it actually creates balance in our lives. When we get to express ourselves and we get to release things instead of holding them and storing them in little places and allowing them to fester and then explode. And you wonder why people go and shoot up a mall or why they go and, you know, harass, you know, a, a school of kids, just craziness. Insanity ensues when we, we don't get to live our full human experience. So that's kind of, where it was uh where it lived with me you have a um oh well yeah you are three times grammy nominated yeah you know when you put out an album uh you you don't need to bring people onto the album but you have brought a handful of talented folks onto this album as well why don't you tell us about them Oh, uh, this was the first time I did that. And, I'm, and now I'm thinking back on it, like, why didn't I do this long ago? <laughs> but I have some amazing guests on this record. Uh, Derek Trucks. Um, um, I used to tour with Derek. He's one of the first tours that I did. Uh, and we, we sort of hit it off very quickly to the point where, like, my band would, like, ride his bus to the next city as we <laughs> were touring together. It was, like, really, really cool. And on even in their record that they, the, the, uh, I always pronounce this word wrong. The Revelator, I think, was the name of their record, where they won the Grammys. Uh, they invited me down to Florida. They're in Jacksonville. I went down, and I sang on, like, and sort of helped vocal arrange, like, nine out of 11 songs on that record. And so we've just been family ever since, you know. And so I went down for that. And then when I did this record, I wrote a song with Rob Thomas, who was also an amazing artist and, you know, pop legend. And uh, but he we wrote the song as our first Zoom session and during the COVID era, <laughs> it was a, it was my second Zoom session and one of his first ones, too. And um, we, we just he was I didn't know at the time that he was signing uh, a new publishing deal with my publishers, which is Round Hill Music. And um, he was. And so they put the co-write together and we just met just over the Zoom session. He was very down to earth and very I don't wear my work on my shoulders and we just sort of hit it off you know and we just and it was he I and this guy Derek Furman who's another great producer and uh, and we just sort of hit it off so Rob Thomas is on it and then when I finished writing the song and it was getting to re- the Imagine Marvin project was done the song I wrote with Rob was so good and I felt it was so 
it's it connected with something that I felt was great for this record that I just mm-hmm. added a, I added the eleventh song. It was supposed to only been ten songs. This song was so good that I actually added it to the project. And then in thinking about it, I was like, Rob, you know, I know we just met each other and everything. I was like, but you know, we wrote this together and I have like listening back to the record the writing session, hearing you sing some of these melodies is great. Why don't you just sing it with me? And he was like, Oh wow, really? i I'd be honored. And so I was like, you'd be honored. I'd be honored. So, <laughs> so we ended up doing our song together. Um, and it's called Love and Pain. It is the, the second single, which, is, which was just released on uh, Black Friday. And, um, and I have him on the record. Um, I have Robert Randolph, who was my first tour ever when I first signed to Columbia. Uh, they were like, we got to get you on the road. And then they called me back a couple of days. You're going out with Robert Randolph and the family band. And that's another brother of mine who was very awesome and and I would do my set and open for him and then after his after my set he called me back out and I do three or four songs with him and his band and just jam and just do whatever I want to do. And so it was just all family. And last but not least, Broadway star royalty Shoshana Bean mm-hmm. has blessed the microphone and we all know what that means. It means that everybody's gonna be slain and laid out in the floor. Um because she's so amazing. Um me and Shoshana have been talking about working together for a long long time like Motown was 2013 I think I met her uh, maybe four or five years before that hmm. um in LA I went to go see her when she first started her stand her thing at the standard um mm-hmm. and I saw her there and I was like first of all what is happening because I didn't know her <laughs> I didn't know her from Wicked before I actually mm-hmm. met her yeah. I found that out later I, I met her I was with some friends in LA and saw her at the standard I was like first of all you are a marvel and I don't know what to say. And um and so we met there and then years later, years later she came to see me in Motown. Cause I don't know if she had ever really well she said a friend of her introduced me to my album. So I think it all all the connections were made somehow. And we kept saying, Oh, we need to work together, we need to do something together. And then a couple of years ago, her first Christmas special with her and Cynthia Revo at Apollo, she called me and she's like, Ryan, I know this is weird, but um my back, one of my singers lost his voice. And I know you're not a background singer. I know you have Grammy nominations. I know you can tell me to screw mm-hmm. up. But I don't know anyone who learns music faster than you and who could probably pull this off. And so <laughs> she was like, and I was like, so when is the concert? She was like, the day after tomorrow. I was like, oh. And she was like, but you can tell me to go away or F off if you want to. I was like, we've been, I've been wanting to work with you for a long time. So I, for you, I will do it. She's like, I owe you, I owe you. And I was like, I'll keep that in mind. So when I did the record, I was like, Shoshana, remember that OU OU that you gave me? Uh, let's 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 come let's come clean with that. And she was like, Oh my God, of course, of course. So I sent her the song. She loved it. And and it was crazy because the album is out now, so we can talk about this. When I want everybody to listen to the album, preferably buy it, but just at least listen, stream if you have to. But um, but when you listen to Shoshana's vocal on Good Love and Ain't Easy to Come By, she had just she was in in I think North Carolina working the whole week before. And we know how hard Shoshana was. So she had worked the whole week before. She flew back to LA. The day she landed, she sang this vocal, jet lagging off.
and it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. So uh, yeah, those are the guest artists, and I, I'm just so happy and thrilled that they all was like were like ex- as excited as I were to have them excited to be on it with me, and that made me feel good. It's just it's so exciting, and and, and listeners can hear how how just the, the sound. The sound of this album is just, you got a, a great group of musicians and arrangers and producers that they all pulled this together. This is great. And uh, I, I don't think I've mentioned yet, it's on Broadway Records, which uh, which is uh, just uh, campaigning so heavily for everybody on Broadway to get back, back and be working. And uh, Van Dean and the crew over there and, and Robbie and everybody else working at Broadway Records, they're, they're just the best for pulling these uh these projects together and doing tons of releases during this pandemic i wanted to ask you um uh marvin gay was sort of known for fighting for what is right now would you agree with that yes absolutely that was part of what bg talked about a lot during when during when we were rehearsing barry gordy yeah barry gordy yeah when we were when we because he he was very hands-on with Motown the musical. And he was there every day, and we heard so many stories and such good stuff. And you know, and at one point during the process, we had a chance to go into the room. Everyone in the cast had a chance to get between ten and fifteen minutes with BG to ask him whatever he wanted to. It could be about music or not about music, anything. He was like an open book, and so it was great. And so the stories he would tell us about Marvin or, or and what he remembers and how Marvin was always wanting to push the push push it. He just also wanted to push the the limits to what could be done or what he or what he thought people expected of him. He always wanted to go a step further. And um and because initially Barry didn't want him to release that what's going on album. He was like, you're a sex mm. symbol, you're a Motown, we have the Black Forum record f- label for that and you are a pop star, a sex symbol and I don't need you to be political. I need you to be a sex symbol so we can make this paper. And he was like, no. And he basically threatened. He was like, if I don't, re- if you won't let me release this record, then I'm leaving. I'm not recording anything else from Motown. And so basically BG relented and was like, well, if you're right, then I'll learn something. And if I'm right, then you'll learn something again. <laughs> I kind of think. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was one of the lines even in the musical. And so it was, just, it was just really cool. But yeah, Marvin always fought for what he believed, especially when it came down. After he lost his brother in Vietnam, after it came down to that, he was always very about you know, standing for the people or what he believed was right for humanity, period. Yeah. So I bring this up because, uh, you know, what's been happening these days, I, I think that Marvin Gaye uh, would be right out there, right in front with uh, Black Lives Matter and, and the fight for Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery and uh, the other things that are going on these days in this turbulent, uh, in, this, in these turbulent times. And you've been out there, uh, headstrong and making public statements about that as well. Uh, has that, um, ha- has anybody in your management team or fans or something like that said, Hey, why don't you cool it on the political stuff? Uh, no, no, no one. It's oh, good to hear. To yeah. No one has said that to me, actually. Um, the only thing that really said to me is that when you all be careful because it was all happening during a pandemic. Sure. Um, but no, I think everyone realizes that this moment in America is necessary and that what is happening should have happened a long time ago. Um, and the, I think now that the movement has started, the task will be how to actually implement the things that we're protesting. Because we can all get in the street and say how we felt, but then if no further conversations happen or no further actions 
go on or no follow up, then it's what America's always used to doing, which is just going back to the same norm and not a new norm. And so I think those conversations still must continue to happen. I think when people, you know, I think it's weird how people's minds work. I think when people, I mean, it's part of the reason we have conversations. So we say, we speak our peace, we speak our grievances, and then we're able to let them go because we've said them. But in this particular case, there has to be actions. There has to be systems that are torn down because the same systems that we were protesting, we all knew they existed. Now we've all acknowledged that they need to be changed, but now we have to change them. You know, but what I feel like happens is people will say, Ooh, I was out there. I went to the protest and I screamed in front of the police and I did that and I did this, but we haven't torn down the systems. We haven't changed any of the laws. Everything is still the same. So (laughs) it's that kind of thing. But yeah, no, no one has said that to me. Um, I've been, I've been pretty able to, that first, I went to a couple of protests too. That first march I did was, it was surreal for me and it was angeringly painful uh, because I found myself, you know, when you, I was excited to go and I was like, I really want to go. And, you know, and I was like, and I got there and I was like, hmm, after like the first 30 seconds of hearing myself chant that my life mattered, that Black Lives Matter, I went into this, I couldn't stop crying. It was like an uncontrollable cry for about 20 minutes probably while I'm marching and I couldn't speak and I was just, and then that, then those tears just became anger. And I was like, why is it that there are 10,000 people in the street right now screaming something that we already know? This is stupid. This is insane that this, that there's a place in this world where this is even necessary. Hmm. And that became the thing. And so I think if anyone were to have said anything to me about that, they, would, they wouldn't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, did you say you were a former Marine? <laughs> was, mm-hmm. that, was that what you said? I mean, yes. th- this is radio, but I feel those <laughs> arms. <laughs> Actually, the, uh, the photographs from the uh, liner notes, you can see that, uh, that uh, you, you have Marine pedigree. You know, and, and uh, you know, you might have a quarter million uh, bucks sitting in a Brinks truck, but uh, if I were the branch manager, I'd send you out to count it because exactly. <laughs> nobody, nobody's taking it away from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I must say that the uh, the pandemic has affected that that physique a little bit. I need to, I'm trying to get back, get it back together. But uh, <laughs> yeah, these last couple of months, I was doing well up until about what August, September, but from February on, I was I was still rocking it and doing well. And then something happened at the end of the summer, and I just I hadn't worked out in a while. And then I started, you know, I was keeping it together with diet because I try to eat a lot of vegan. And then I had a burger, and then yeah. you know, and then you know things, you know, it's dollar pizza. It's, it's, well, it's, I, I can't, and that's the crazy way well, and it wasn't even dollar pizza because i'm actually i can't have dairy really which is, which is actually great um which actually i'm actually starting a side business because who knows when i'm gonna be able to sing again i actually I'm, I'm one of the best bakers around right really yeah and i'm actually gonna be like you know selling some of my wares um, because I need to keep my publicist and uh, <laughs> so i'm going to be uh you know, until this thing really breaks all the way open, I need to keep a team around me. So I need to 
supplement some income because, you know, all the symphony work I was doing is not happening and Broadway sure. is not happening. And so it's just this record and I've invested a lot in this record. And I need to keep investing in the record. So mm-hmm. I was like, what other skills do I have? And so I'm a great baker. So I'm like starting this little bakery thing. But in order for me to make my cakes, I wanted to make a cake that I could have again. And like I make red velvet and carrot cake and, mm-hmm. uh, and I've developed some other flavors because I started selling my cakes actually when I was in London. That's a whole different story though, but that was pretty cool. Um, but now I can't have my icing, which is my favorite icing, like the buttercream icing, you know, the you know, the cream cheese and butter. And so I started doing, um, I started going to like Whole Foods and buying like all the cream cheeses that you can find because I wanted to make my icing. But vegan cream cheeses don't fare the same and they definitely, sure. don't, taste, and they definitely don't taste the same, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm used to a good old, you know, give me a good old Philadelphia cream cheese. Mm-hmm. And um and so I couldn't find one. So I went online. I said, maybe I can find a recipe for one. So I started like making, found a couple of recipes, made them. They were okay. And then some lights went on in my head about flavors and different things because I am a good cook. And I actually, literally, I make my own vegan cream cheese. And it's better than anything you can buy in the store. And so I'm actually trying to get that off of the ground. So, But it came out of the necessity for me to make my cakes taste like the cakes I used to make or my regular mm-hmm. cake. But in a vegan way, and most vegan stuff don't taste good. But my vegan cakes are pretty extremely, actually, they're really dope. And so I'm <laughs> trying to perfect my recipes, and then I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna go to market with this. But that's the kind of stuff that's been that I've been doing <laughs> in the in the in the in the on the sides. But that's we, just because I need to keep my team. We were talking about the Upper West Side, and uh, and there, there, there's this uh, vegan place on. Mm-hmm. Amsterdam in like 95, 96 Ayurveda Cafe. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but uh, they they do some amazing vegan dishes that are, I'm like, this has no dairy in it? This is vegan? How are you <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't been to that place, but there's another place in the neighborhood, but it's south of there. It's on like 81st and Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And it's called, I can't remember the name. That place is so good. Um and I'm, 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 I'm looking at them right now because it was so good. I do want to just give them a shout out because they blessed my whole life. Um, vegan food, 81st in Amsterdam. It's called, uh, yeah, Peace Food. Oh, yeah. That place is so good. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, they're on four, at 460 Amsterdam. And they're not even paying me to say this. <laughs> I need to tell them I need to keep my publicist so I need to, I need to. <laughs> uh, Ryan I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio your album Imagining Marvin is available at Broadway Records and everywhere else that you can buy uh, albums so please check it out um, and uh, when all the craziness of the pandemic is over I hope that uh, we get you uh doing some big concerts and uh, having selling your cakes in the lobby. I mean, they, they, they did it at Waitress. They sold the pies in the lobby, so you can sell, the, can sell your cakes in the lobby as well. Yes. All right. And if you do a Sweeney Todd, please uh, come back on Broadway Radio and talk with us and let us know how it I goes. I think okay? I'm just going to do all of the Sweeney Todd, maybe his big songs from the show, and I'm just going to put out like an EP. And maybe, oh, that'll, okay. and maybe that'll spark something in some producer somewhere to do the show with me a reimagined Sweeney Todd yeah <laughs> if it'll be allowed you know sometimes they don't allow you to change their music but we do yeah. a Sweeney Todd um, club mix exactly <laughs> 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 
<laughs> you know, it'll be more like Sweeney Todd goes, you know, goes R&B gospel. It'll be more of that. But yeah, but there's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled with people who are filled with shit and the vermin of the world inhabited and it goes by the name of London. Now you see why it needs to go up a key. Because I, yeah. there's a hole in the world like a great black pit. Now, now we get it. Mm-hmm. Are we on the same page now? <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I said take it up an octave. Exactly. <laughs> Baby, I'm hot just like an oven. I need some loving. Baby, baby, I can't hold it much longer. It's getting stronger and stronger. And when I get that feeling, I want sexual healing. Sexual healing, baby, is good for me. Making me feel so fine. Helps to relieve my mind. And it's good for me. And when I get that feeling, I want Sexual healing, sexual healing, baby. Good for me, sexual healing is something that's good for me. Whenever blue. 